It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hello and welcome to the very first episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. We'll be coming to you every week. My name is Adam. Next week we look at a fascinating Ponzi scheme fraud, but for today it's murder. We go back to Boxing Day in 2011 and look at the case of Katie Winter, tragically killed by her boyfriend when she was just 19 years old. Wood is a small town in Hertfordshire, it's around 10 miles north of central London. It's probably best known for the high-profile films made at the nearby Elstree Studios, such as Dr. Shivago, The Shining, and the first few Indiana Jones films. At one time, it was nicknamed the British Hollywood. On the morning of December the 27th, 2011, Joy Davis arrived at her daughter Sabrina's house in Boreham Wood. Her youngest daughter, Catherine, known to everyone as Katie, had been babysitting for Sabrina's two young children. As Sabrina had left the house the night before, her last words to Katie had been, lock the door and don't let anybody in. As she approached the house just before 8am, Joy saw blood on the door. She could hear her grandchildren, who were aged just three and four, chattering inside the house as she arrived at the door. When Joy called their names, they ran towards her, but they were shouting, Grandma, Grandma, Katie's dead. We can only imagine how Joy must have felt at that moment. It must have been utter disbelief. It got even worse as Joy moved even further into the house and saw bloody footprints. As she hurried towards the kitchen, to utter horror, she saw Katie's feet poking out from under the doorframe. Inside the kitchen, she was confronted by a scene that must have been something from a horror movie for her. Her daughter, Katie's body, lay against the fridge covered in blood. Joy tried to lift her, but she was already cold and stiff. Katie had clearly suffered a violent death. There was no sign of a forced entry, which suggests that Katie knew her attacker and had opened the door to let them into the house. The killer must have known that Katie was babysitting young children, and they were happy to leave them locked in the house with Katie's body overnight, knowing the gruesome sight that they would be confronted with in the morning. I mean, what what sort of a cold person could, cold-blooded person could do this? It's really hard to understand. It was found that Katie had died from a severe wound to the neck and a stab wound to the stomach that had penetrated her vital organs. She had 13 significant stab wounds and 23 in total, some of which were defensive injuries, especially to her right hand. This is a clear indication that Katie knew what was happening as she was being viciously, viciously stabbed and she tried desperately to protect herself from her attacker. This is a clear indication that Katie knew what was happening as she was being viciously attacked and she desperately tried to protect herself. Katie's death, it came as a terrible shock to all who knew her. Everyone, without exception, spoke glowingly about what a lovely girl she'd been. People spoke about her shy nature, described how she loved spending time for family and friends. She had a wonderful sense of humour. Katie loved to dance and she danced whenever she could. She was very artistic and she, she drew in a wonderful way. She regularly attended church every Sunday. She didn't drink alcohol 
and she didn't go out partying. That wasn't the sort of girl she was. At the time of her death, Katie was studying a two-year foundation degree course in illustration at West Hertfordshire College in Watford. This is where she first met a 19-year-old man called Tony Bushby, who six months later would kill her. So who was this Tony Bushby? Tony lived with his mother and siblings nearby. His family had split after his father left home when Tony was back at primary school. He was shy and quiet and Bushby's main passion growing up was karate and after training for most of his life he'd reached black belt status. He aspired to become a full-time instructor in the martial arts and that this time he was working in a local holiday inn. Michael Hollingbury was the owner of the Orke Kai Karate Club in Boreham Wood and he taught Bushby karate for a number of years. When he heard the news about Bushby, he was just astounded when he heard what happened and he assumed that they must have had the wrong person. In fact, nobody who knew Bushby could recall him ever showing any signs of violent behaviour. Bushby had first met Katie at college in Watford. He had already left Katie's college in June 2011, six months before the murder took place. Katie's friends say that when at college, they never saw the two together and they didn't share any classes. In contrast to Katie, Tony was always seen as a rather awkward outsider who didn't mix well at all. But in April 2011, Tony asked Katie out and they went on their first date to the cinema. So how did that relationship continue to develop after college? Well, as for most teenagers, the answer is social media and more specifically in this case, it was Facebook. Bushby actively pursued Katie via Facebook. Katie's friends and family say she was very secretive about her relationship with Bushby and she didn't want to say too much about it. Now this is surprising knowing Katie's open manner and also that most teenagers, you know, they share almost every detail about their first real boyfriend with their close friends. It's suspected that the reason she was much more guarded was due to Bushby, who had told her to keep details of their relationship a secret. So, even at this stage, had Bushby decided that he was going to kill Katie? Katie did share with her closest friends a little about the relationship. She told them she loved him, but she gave the impression they didn't see each other much face to face. Instead, their communication was mainly electronic, speaking primarily through Facebook and texts. When they did meet, they didn't go to the standard teenage dating activities that you or I might have gone to, such as seeing other friends, parties, bowling, or just hanging out, cafes, coffee shops, other public places. Instead, they met at a private and secluded clearing in the forest, where they were just talk and kiss. So how did a loner like Bushby manage to get so close to Katie? Well, quite simply, he deceived her. He created four fictitious friends on Facebook, Dan Tress, Sin Darwin, Shane Pluren and Crystal Stangard. He manipulated Katie with these fictional characters who all contacted her via Facebook and who she started to chat with regularly. Well, she would do, they were friends of her boyfriend. He used these characters to build up Katie's trust in him along with painting a much more favourable picture of who he really was. He even assigned each of these characters random photos he found online. He added depth and background to their online personalities to make them more authentic. For example, Crystal Stangard was interested in all things dark and evil. Bushby used the character Plune to tell Katie over Facebook that Bushby sorts people out and that he had a sexual relationship with Sin. Sin gave the impression that she wasn't fully over this relationship with Bushby and although she was very friendly to Katie, 
she made it pretty clear she was interested in winning him back. He also told Katie that Boreham Wood was a forbidden zone for me and the gang. This allowed Bushby to explain to Katie why she never saw his friends and why they couldn't be seen out together in public places. The elaborate story weaved by Bushby reassured Katie that he was a great boyfriend material. As we know, in their online activity, anyone can claim to be anything they want to be. There was nothing in any of these interactions with Bushby's made-up characters to alert Katie that everything wasn't exactly as it seemed. Later, after the murder had taken place, when questioned by police about his bogus Facebook activity, Bushby completely denied making up his Facebook friends. However, the police were able to demonstrate beyond any doubt that these identities were created by Bushby, as the IP addresses used for all of them were created on a computer used just by him. Furthermore, when a police analyst examined his computer, first thing he did went to the recycle bin, and lo and behold, there were the photographs he downloaded from the internet to make all the false Facebook profiles. So, despite taking the time to build this elaborate deceit, Bushby hadn't been careful enough to cover his own tracks, which is, I think is pretty surprising. So let's move forward to the events leading up to the killing. Three days before the murder, Bushby had lured Katie to the woods by a field on the outskirts of the town, claiming they were to meet up with one of his fictional friends, Sin Darwin, the one he'd lied he'd had a previous relationship with. When nobody turned up, Katie and Bushby left. But why, did, why would he trick her into meeting in a muddy field in the cold and dark in Boreham Wood in December? Could it be that he'd planned to kill her then, but something went wrong? Why go to such bizarre lengths to get her to come out late at night, pretending another woman would be there? Katie's family firmly believe it's only because Katie mentioned that her sister knew she was meeting Bushby that night that saved her from being killed on that evening. We can only imagine that Bushby was terribly frustrated by this missed opportunity and was anxious to carry out the murder as soon as possible afterwards. Over Christmas, Bushby bombarded Katie with texts and messages. They then arranged to meet at Katie's sister's house on Boxing Day evening when she'd be babysitting for her sister Sabrina. This is the evening when he murdered Katie. For a murder that was presumed to be premeditated, Bushby does not seem to have thought too much about what he would do after the crime. Why is this, I wonder? Wouldn't you have expected him to have prepared his actions following the crime in much more detail, knowing that he was going to be a prime suspect? It is estimated that Katie was killed sometime between about 9.15 and 9.40 on Boxing Day evening. After leaving the scene, Bushby returned home. We know that he still had blood on his clothes and hands as the next day police found Katie's blood smeared on the front door of his house. In the hour directly following Katie's murder, Bushby appeared to be fixated by Facebook. He was repeatedly looking at Katie's Facebook account. Bushby googled information on what he needed to do to delete an account and he even made inquiries to Facebook about how he could permanently do this. No doubt the point of this was to remove evidence of their conversations which placed him firmly at the scene of the murder. There was also damage to his mobile phone screen and SIM card. Again, police suspect this was done intentionally in an attempt to erase data relevant to his contact with Katie the night before. In fact, when police arrived at his house the morning after the murder, he was actually out buying a new mobile phone. I find this really strange. Had he really not thought of how he was going to avoid being found guilty of the murder until after he'd killed Katie? 
or in his world of self-deception where he felt he took control of situations, was he convinced that he would evade detection? Bushby disposed of the blood-stained clothes and shoes in a bulky bin bag, which he was seen on CCTV carrying through Boreham Wood. Unfortunately, the refuse collectors got there before the police could find the bag and the rubbish was taken away for it could be analysed. Detectives suspect that the murder weapon was also in this package, as it was never recovered. With all the evidence leading clearly to Bushby, he was arrested on the day Katie's body was found and subsequently charged with Katie's murder. He pleaded not guilty. His trial took place at St Albans Crown Court, where on the 25th of July 2012, Tony Bushby was found guilty of murder. He was sentenced to life imprisonment, with the judge ruling he would serve at least 25 years in prison. This means he'll be 43 when he's first eligible for parole. Throughout the trial, Bushby maintained his innocence, basing his alibi on one of his fictitious Facebook friends, Dan Tress. When asked if he'd killed Katie, Bushby replied, I didn't kill her. I honestly didn't kill her. If there was one person who didn't deserve that, it was her. He'd initially told police he was not even Katie's boyfriend. They just knew each other. He did admit to speaking to her the evening that she was killed, but explained this was just an innocent chat when he was walking home and she had told him that she was babysitting for her sister that evening. However, his story soon changed. The next day he asked to speak to police officers, and he told them he had made a mistake when he spoke to them the day before. He would lied to them, but the reason he had done this was just to protect a friend who had been with somebody else, and they would asked him to do them a favour. He went on to say that the reason Katie's blood had been found on his front door was because he would wearing gloves given to him by his Facebook friend Dan Tress. Remember? Mr Tress, one of the fictitious... Facebook quartet, remember him? Bushby told police on the evening of Katie's murder he'd been sitting in a car with Tress who had given him the gloves because his hands were cold. When asked why Tress would possibly want to kill Katie, Bushby said he didn't know. Again, it's just so hard to understand how Bushby thought that this change of story could possibly be accepted by police or anybody else. Is it possible that one last act of self-deception, he'd even managed to convince himself that Dan Tress was a real person. At his trial, Michael Speak for the prosecution put the following to Bushby. If Dan Tress does not exist, your story is an outright lie. Bushby agreed. Mr Speak continued, Where is he? To which Bushby replied, I don't know. I wish I did. Dan Tress was clearly never found, unsurprisingly, as he'd been made up by Bushby. Just to be absolutely sure, detectives made searches of income tax records, criminal databases and the DVLA, but nobody of that name existed. Bushby had told police he knew Tress through karate clubs. Inquiries were made of clubs, but nobody of that name was found. Although only a teenager, during the trial Bushby gave the impression of being very much in control, and he didn't break down once. He didn't give her a real reason for killing Katie, sticking to his alibi, and continuing to insist he was innocent. Prosecutor Speak commented, We will probably never know precisely why he murdered Katie. We will probably never know how far in advance he planned to kill her. Katie's family, who had to sit through all the upsetting details of the case in court, noted that throughout the trial, Bushby was arrogant, acting like a big man, when in reality, as Katie's sister Sabrina noted, he was just a nobody. So, why did Bushby take the life of an innocent young woman? Was it something specifically about Katie? 
or was she just unlucky enough to cross paths with such a dangerous man as Bushby? It became clear during the investigation that Bushby had an unhealthy interest in serial killers, especially the American policeman stroke serial killer Dexter. His Facebook profile was full of quotes and other references to Dexter. Do you know Dexter? Well, if you're not familiar with him, he's a character where the boundaries between reality and fantasy become increasingly blurred. And as we've already seen, this is certainly relevant to Bushby's life, so we can see to an extent how you might identify with that. During the trial, some disturbing facts emerged which pointed to a sexual motive. It transpired that during his Facebook conversations with Katie, Bushby was also watching rape porn and submissive black girl porn. These films he was watching were pretty horrendous, with one film, for example, showing a woman forced to perform sex acts with a knife held to her throat. As he watched the pornography, he was carrying out some chilling Google searches such as how long does it take to dig a grave by hand and how long it does it take to burn a human body? Bushby fully admitted looking at the pornographic websites, including ones relating to rape, but explained it by saying, I've just been curious. I've made no connection when I look at it in real life. However, he couldn't recall the other searches relating to disposing of a human body. The judge was in no doubt at all that the motivation for the murder was sexual. Sentencing Bushby as someone who poses a very real danger to women, Judge Andrew Bright QC described the murder as planned and premeditated. He added, Although there was no sexual assault, I'm satisfied that the motive was indeed a sexual one, and you derived sexual excitement from inflicting those injuries upon her. You inflicted stab wounds to the top of each of her thighs. I'm satisfied you intended to kill her and made sure you had done so before leaving her in a pool of blood in the kitchen where her young charges were to find her. As Bushby was led from the dock to begin his sentence, shouts of, I hope you rot, rang out from the public gallery, which was filled with Katie's family and friends. So was Katie targeted before they even started their relationship due to her colour? Was the real motive, as the judge believed, a sexual one? Katie's family certainly agree with the judge. Her sister Sabrina said, Bushby went from being obsessed with this type of violent fantasy to realising he knows a black woman and making the obsession a reality. These films depict black women in a very specific and degrading way. Since her murder, Katie's family been very active and high profile in campaigning against this type of extreme pornography. So as we approach the five-year anniversary of the murder, hearing Katie's family talk about her death is just heartbreaking. Whereas Christmas for us tends to be a time of, of peace, of hope, of people getting together, catching up with family and friends, Christmas is certainly not the happy time of year for Katie's family. We think back to Katie's mum, Joy, who told of how the children first saw Katie's body and they kept asking if she could send her to God so he could fix her and send her back. She must miss her terribly. How much the children saw is unclear, but even now they still talk about it. Katie's sister Sabrina says, It hurts so much to think of them carrying the image of their auntie in their heads. My daughter still draws pictures of Katie covered in red. As well as Katie's family, it's really tough for Katie's friends. For them too, this is something that's going to be forever etched in their minds. And this was a really close group. Few people will give a second thought about Bushby and just be thankful he's no longer a danger to the public. However, 
I wonder how Bushby feels about what happened as he matures in years and reflects on his actions during those long years ahead in his prison cell. Will there ever be any remorse for his actions? Or is he really just the monster he showed himself to be in this case? Well, I hope you've enjoyed this first episode. If so, please do leave us a review on iTunes. To subscribe to this weekly podcast, yes, we're going to be here every week. And for more about UK true crime, please head to our website at uktruecrime.com. Thanks again for listening. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.